enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast of the Cape Elizabeth Church of the Nazarene in Cape Elizabeth, Maine. Download more sermons or learn about the Cape Elizabeth Church of the Nazarene at our website, capenazarene.org. Here's this week's message. The last few weeks, we've been doing a series during the Lent season about sacrifice. Lent, a season where usually, usually we give up something or sacrifice something in remembrance that we're willing to give all to God and we live by His grace alone. And so we have been kind of going through looking at uh, ways in which sacrifice was understood in Scripture, particularly at some important covenantal moments in Scripture, starting with Abram. Remember when God first meets and promises to make his descendants as numerous as the stars, and it's the beginning of God's commitment to his people. And then also, of course, we have uh, the covenant with Moses and the giving of the law. And we found in Leviticus last week the whole kind of setup for how and why that they would give sacrifices. That in By and large, it was because they wanted to be able to draw closer to God, and God was welcoming them to do this. And so, uh, and then we just read in Jeremiah, the the line I, I, I think I quote most often, that God's desire to be our God, and that we would be His people, that that is His covenant that He desires to have with us. And uh, when we say, and so I wanted us also through the series to get a better understanding of, of the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus dying for our sins or being, our, being a sacrifice, these are, these are phrases that are used uh, quite often in the church, used in scripture, used in conversation, used in our songs as well. And, and I think we need to kind of have to try to come to understand, well, what is meant by that? And I, hopefully the last couple of weeks have really helped prepare us for that today. But I want us to understand, as we get ready to look into this, the power of a metaphor. A metaphor. Do you remember what a metaphor is? Got to go back to fifth grade English class for that, right? A metaphor is when you say something is something else. It's not really, but it really kind of is. (laughs) Uh, Let me give some examples. Uh, Laughter is the best medicine, right? You've heard that phrase, laughter is the best medicine. Well, I mean, it's not doesn't cure COVID, for instance, but laughter does kind of like, it makes a big difference. It, it cures what ails you. Maybe I'm mixing metaphors there. But laughter uh, will indeed, you know, brighten you up when everything seems to be going wrong. Hanging around with people who can make you laugh just changes everything, right? Uh, one of the most popular, famous uh, poets and playwrights said, all the world's a stage, and all the men and women are merely players, right? A metaphor about our world. Even Jesus would use this when he said phrases like, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. We know he was a carpenter, not actually a shepherd, and that this is a metaphor. We also know we're humans, and we don't grow wool. And so, you know, this is the, but it's the power of the metaphor, Right? Uh, We we understand what people mean by that. And so go back to some music of childhood, perhaps. And Simon and Garfunkel, when they say, I am a rock, I'm an island, we know what they mean. We know what they mean. Or or, or if if I were to go back to my youth, uh, songs that would like capture the angst of teenage years, Smashing Pumpkins said, the world is a vampire. (laughs) And so you have this kind of these metaphors that just kind of 
They're like, okay, we understand uh, what they're saying. The challenge of the early church was to try to explain and understand why God might resurrect someone who was crucified among insurrectionists. The challenge of the early church was to explain how are Gentiles so easily assumed into the saving grace of the God of the Hebrews. The challenge of the early church was to explain how and why God would allow the long-awaited Jewish Messiah to die at the hands of the Romans. And so today, we're going to turn to the book of Hebrews. It is a book that is filled with metaphors. In fact, commentary authors, not, not knowing what to call this author, is this Paul who wrote this or someone else? Not certain. The author is often called the preacher because the book of Hebrews is filled with illustrations and metaphors and examples. Uh, and so much like a preacher will, will pepper their sermon with metaphors and illustrations, so does Hebrews. And so we have spent an incredible amount of time through this series building up to understanding some of the metaphors that he uses in the book of Hebrews. In particular, we've learned about the temple sacrifice, and we're going to read about that again. And how we, and we heard in, in Leviticus chapter 4 how the high priest was involved in bringing the sacrifice to the temple, sprinkling, sprinkling the blood toward the Holy of Holies, taking part in the same purification as the rest of the people for sins that they did not intentionally commit, just as a way of saying, our desire is just to make sure that our sin doesn't affect the temple and to make sure that we are still in right relationship with God. And so this is the imagery, the sacrificial language that is described in Hebrews chapter 9 to talk about what is happening to Jesus. It's a powerful metaphor to help answer those burning questions of the early church. Why did Jesus die? Why does the whole world get to experience the grace of God now? Why was this one resurrected? Let's go to Hebrews chapter 9, starting at verse 11. When Christ came as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and perfect tent, not made with human hands, that is not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy place, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls with the sprinkling of the ashes of a heifer sanctifies those who have been defiled so that their flesh is purified, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself, without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to worship the living God. For this reason, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, because a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions under the first covenant." Where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Hence, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been told to all the people of Moses in accordance with the law, 
He took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the scroll itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God has ordained for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the sketches of the, whole, of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves need better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made by human hands, a mere copy of the true one, but he entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself again and again as the high priest enters the holy place year after year with blood that is not his own. For then he would have to have had to suffer again and again since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the age to remove sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for mortals to die once and after that the judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who, eagerly, who are eagerly waiting for him. So I want to set this up again, the setup of this metaphor, right? Jesus as the high priest. We saw a hint of that too with Darling's great reading in Hebrews chapter 4, right? The high priest would represent the people. They could enter the holy temple uh, only after they had, they had done their own sacrifice of either a goat or a calf, and they would make sure that they, they had not accidentally sinned against a holy God would, and would do this sacrifice to make sure that they could get closer to God, that they could enter the temple where God was understood to dwell. And so the, the author of Hebrews tells us, well, if Christ has entered heaven after the resurrection. That is a part of the story of our faith, that after the resurrection, Jesus is speaking with his disciples and tells them, you are going to be my witnesses now throughout Jerusalem, Judea, to the ends of the earth. My Holy Spirit's going to be with you. And then, they, and then, it, then the, the testimony of the church is that they see, saw what seemed like a cloud descending, and he ascended up into the heavens. Christ after the resurrection, carried into the clouds, into the heavens with God. And the underlying question is, you know, how can someone do this? Excuse me. <coughs> how can a man do this, ascend to the heavens? How is that even possible? For us, 21st century, probably the way we ask that is we want to know the practical means. Wait a minute, a cloud? But we know what a cloud's made up. Like, how does he ascend on a cloud? That doesn't make sense. How does someone in the first century go into the heavens without the aid of one of Jeff Bezos' rockets? Like, we're just trying to, like, well, we're just trying to figure this out. But that, now, while the early church asked that question, how can someone do this, ascend to the heavens? Their question wasn't concerned with how do you get up there. They believed the miracle when they saw him ascend, their question would have been, how can a human be holy enough to enter the presence of God? How can Jesus possibly be in the presence of God? Priests, just to get close to the, the Holy of Holies in the temple, are offering sacrifices of purification. But what about Jesus? And the author lets us know that there was indeed a sacrifice a metaphorical one. You see, Jesus died 
And He died in service and obedience to God. Therefore, His death is seen as a sacrifice. One that solidifies His eternal relationship with God the Father. You see, there was no laying hands on the offering presented at the altar as a way of transference of of, of any kind of sin I might have done or, or, or as a way of saying their death and their offering will be mine if the time comes. Jesus... The time had come, and he offered his life. And and then uh, the author of Hebrews takes this illustration, and he keeps going with it. A lot of times when when you catch a good illustration, okay, you just let it go. People understand. They know what you're talking about. He keeps going with it. He says, it's like, it's like saying, hey, we just talk about how you, when they sacrifice an animal, as a way of kind of transferring guilt or transferring responsibility, saying, my life is yielded to God, and this animal is a representation of my life given over to God. But there was no transference with Jesus. It was his body, his life, so yielded to the will of God that the world could not stand him. They could not stand his holiness, and they rejected him. If Jesus then functions as the sacrifice, the author tells us his blood now holds the sanctifying power. The blood of Jesus, because the Holy Spirit raises him from the dead, it is the blood of Jesus that purifies us, not the blood of any other sacrifice. Or to borrow a line from a good hymn, there is power power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. It is a blood that never loses its power. It is the only thing that can take away my sins. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is what Hebrews is saying for us. And never forget this. What Jesus does is restores us to God. There is no sin that will separate us from the love of God, from the covenant He has always wanted to have with us. I want to be your God, and you get to be my people. That is His covenant that He has desired for us. The promise of love, provision, eternity, dwelling with us. In Jesus, we find God never turns His back. God never closes His eyes. He never bows His head in shame. In Jesus, our God is always reaching out to us. So Hebrew calls him there, then the, the mediator of a new covenant, of recognizing that in him is our salvation. Not in, in making sure we, we follow the Mosaic law of sacrifice, but in Jesus Christ, because he is mediating for us, because he's the one directly before God in heaven. He has entered into the heavens, or as Hebrews calls it, the temple not made with human hands to intercede for us before God in the most real possible way, before our actual God. He's not just in the temple, not just in the representation of where God lives, but actually with our Heavenly Father as a sign of hope, of our hope, of our reconciliation before God. He is the mediator of this new covenant, a covenant that includes the promise of an eternal inheritance. Now he goes on to talk about this idea of a covenant and continues to go on with sacrificial language. You think he just let the metaphor go from there. But he starts to use, I think it's called a synonym, when one word can mean two different things, right? right? We've got to go back to that fifth grade English class again, right? When one word can mean two different things. And so uh, he uses the word covenant and will. They are the same exact Hebrew word. They are, uh, you, it's the context that tells you whether or not they mean a covenant, a promise, a commitment, or a will, something that, you know, 
is, is handed out after someone's death. They are the same word. It's a play on words, kind of like a pun. Kind of like uh, for us, we have the word uh, uh, produce, to make or create or do something. Or produce, which if you get, it means you went to the store and got some vegetables, right? And so like, it's the same word, but they mean two different things. But they both kind of mean are related in that there's a yield, something comes to fruition, um, and, and so yet yeah, there's a relation, but yet they're two totally different things. In the same way, the word covenant and will, they're absolutely related, but there is a nuance there. And so he says, uh, just as uh, with this covenant, so also in any will, there is a death involved. In fact, there has to be a death involved with a will before the will can be enacted. A will can only be carried out after a death. And so, so it's like him saying, why should we be shocked that the death of Jesus might constitute the start of a new covenant? It's as if Jesus said, well, this being my last will and testament... I of sound will and body bequeath unto the entire world whatever glory the Father might be pleased to enact upon this mangled and crucified body. Of course, none of that would make any sense or have any bearing or standing at all if there wasn't a resurrection, if there wasn't a God who looked upon that broken, rejected man and breathed his sanctified spirit into that very one in order to redeem it precisely as it is, still broken, still crucified, so that we, being recipients of that promise, might also be redeemed as well, restored to God, no matter how broken, used up, fed up, chewed up we might be. The Father is pleased to pour out His Holy Spirit into our lives as well, to sanctify us. Hebrews is going to close by reminding us that the temple, or our church, if you think of it that way, is merely a sketch of the heavenly things. A sketch, just a picture. I remember when I first came, one of my, one of my joys when I first came was, was when Dan sketched a boat for Alex and was drawing on a paper and sharing with Alex a picture of a boat. And he says to me, oh yeah, I have a boat just like this in the harbor. I was like, really? And one day he took me out and he showed me that boat. And I thought, this is, this is awesome. This is amazing. I got to see the reality of what he had only sketched that on that Sunday. And when Hebrews tells us and reminds us that uh, we are just a sketch of the heavenly things or that all these rituals and the purification that they had was necessary for that which is a sketch of the heavenly things, he's reminding us that we come and we put our lives before God each week when we worship, when we share together, when we love, when we care for one another that we are a sketch, a, a symbol of the heavenly bodies, or, or, or of what it will be like in heaven. We, of all different backgrounds, different thoughts, of different persuasions, different geography. Yes, there are people who are watching different states and different parts of the world. Or even, for those who might be watching later, different time periods. Yet, we are all, right now, in this moment... Join together in worship. So will it be in heaven as well. That we of all different geography, all different thoughts, persuasions, and backgrounds, and different time periods will be joined together in heaven. So the question, of course, for us might be, well, how do I make sure that happens? How do I get to heaven? I mean, certainly, we're not all getting 
tickets on one of Jeff Bezos' spacecraft. No, but of course, that's not what we mean when we ask that question, right? We're not asking what it looks like. We'll leave that to God. We'll let God be creative with how he does it. Maybe at the end of the day, we'll say, I can't believe how all-pervasive God's mercy was to cover the whole world and draw it up to him. It was like a cloud just covering the whole world. I don't know what analogy we'll use. But someday this will happen. I'll let God surprise me how it actually happens. But the the, the same kind of question, the different meaning, how is this going to happen is, how can I get to heaven? How do I make sure that God's arms are still open for me? I mean, do you know me? (laughs) Do you know my faults, my flaws, my past? How can I get to heaven? Okay, well, Jesus, he was perfect. We've heard that, but far from it. How do I get to be in the same place as God and not have lightning strike me when I'm there? Hebrews tells us we can because of Christ. Because all of our imperfectness has been transferred to Christ. And God was pleased to raise that one from the dead. The one who took on our imperfectness, the one who took on our sinfulness. It is all raised up. The entire metaphor of Christ as sacrifice is based on the Jewish understanding of that covenantal relationship. He's going to be our God. We're going to be His people. It is based on the understanding of Abram's covenant and the Mosaic covenant that, ha- that was handed over by the law by which we might be able to atone for our sins, our unintentional sins. And, and, this sac- and these sacrifices were meant to always draw them closer to God, to make sure they hadn't strayed. The sacrifices were never out of a sense of guilt or a sense of appeasement. Did you notice that when, when reading Leviticus last week? They weren't worried that God was angry with them. They weren't worried that they had strayed. They hadn't worried that something had like gone wrong. Now, there are examples in Scripture where, indeed, God has gotten upset with them, but the sacrificial language is all about relating themselves to God and making sure that they can draw into His presence and making sure that they are everything God wants them to be. It was never about making God happy or less angry. They were always worried they weren't worthy enough. And I think sometimes, in our own understanding of, of what Jesus has done for us, As much as we talk about uh, uh, Jesus dying on the cross for our sins or or Jesus being the sacrifice, our problem is that we often associate that with an angry God. We often associate that with guilt of our sin. We often associate that with God must hate me and be angry at me, but at least Jesus did something so he's less angry at me. But that's not the imagery that we found with Abram or in Leviticus at all. All of that stems from a Middle Ages theology. All of that stems from centuries of trying to pressure people, of trying to say, hey, you better watch out or else. God's angry with you. God's upset with you. It's a good thing Jesus died, because or else you, you're done for. And they use that, of course, to help, you know, like self-forgiveness, to help like pray their people out of, out of hell. They, the, the, the Middle Ages church did that, but it's hung on. It makes it hard sometimes for us to talk about Jesus and his death without thinking, well, God the Father must have done something, must have like, he has a weird sense of love or something. But if we learn anything from this series, let it be that the way in which we are made right with God is that our God has made the first move towards us and he invites us to live in his grace. 
to receive the power of His Holy Spirit that sanctifies, that removes sin, that changes us. The Holy Spirit that will unite us with His will and cleanse us from sin. God does, does this not out of anger or guilt or disappointment in us. He does this because He has said since the beginning of time, I want to be your God. I want to dwell with you because we are all children of Abraham. This is His promise to the world. In just a few weeks' time, there's going to be talk about the cross as we go into Good Friday. Of course, there's going to be talk about the sacrifice of Jesus. And it's a good term. It's a familiar term. We've sung it. There are terms that have entered deep, sometimes into our consciousness, into our vocabulary. But how He wants us to be sanctified uh, it's good, to, but it is it is important for us to remember. It is a metaphor about how God wants a relationship with us. It is a metaphor using the Jewish understanding of sacrifice about how God wants a relationship with us, how He wants us to be sanctified and to draw near to His presence. When it gets corrupted to say Jesus is, you know. I don't know, paying a price or appeasing an angry God, then we get a picture of God straight out of a church that was trying to sell indulgences or a church that is trying to sell fire insurance. But I'm here to tell you the gospel is a whole lot more good news than that. Our God has always wanted us to draw near to Him. And the death and resurrection of Jesus only solidifies that covenant because Jesus is in heaven mediating on our behalf as one who is as broken and as defeated as we might ever be, but yet is one who says God was pleased to raise up and dwell here with me, and we are welcomed to come and dwell with God as well. So let our lives be lived in reflection and thanksgiving and glory of what God has done and desires to do for us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so in awe that you would never stop loving us or caring for us. That as we read in the first scripture reading that you said, uh, you haven't kept the covenant, so I'm going to make another one. One that I'm going to write it on your hearts and etch it in your minds. One that will last forever. That, Lord, when we were unfaithful then, you were still faithful. And that, Heavenly Father, when your Son came, came as the Messiah to restore us to a relationship with you, to restore your kingdom, to be everything that uh, uh, we had prayed would, would be an answer for in this world. When he was rejected, you said, I will still be faithful to the covenant. And you raised him up from the dead. And so today, Heavenly Father, in our experience, in our life, wherever we have failed, wherever we have fallen short, let us remember you have said, I am still faithful. And so, Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for that. And I thank you that there is one who has taken on our sin said that as long as you draw breath, no, forgiveness is available. For I have taken on all of that. And so, Heavenly Father, may we see in Jesus indeed the sign and symbol of obedience and sacrifice, but also the power, the hope, the promise to live our lives dedicated and given over to you. 
Help us, Heavenly Father, to live in that grace and in that hope. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. To Him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before His glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. More sermons are available online at our website, capenazarene.org. Our website also includes instructions for subscribing to our podcast so you can have a message delivered to you weekly. May God bless you as you serve Him this week.